Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Exodus 2, 1 through 10. You can find that on page 45 of your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that as a gift from us. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Francis. Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community. It's great to see each one of you here this morning. We're so glad uh, to have you with us at Christ Community. And again, if this is your uh, very first Sunday with us or you're still newer to Christ Community, thank you for being here, for being with us. Uh, finding a new church home, I know, is not uh, an easy thing to do. Whether you've been a churchgoer your whole life or you're just kind of checking out church for the first time, we're really glad uh, that you're here with us this morning. And as we continue in our Forgotten Family uh, series this morning, um, I want to pray as we do that. So let me, let me pray over us now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have called each and every one of us, whether we are younger or older, male or female, um, you have called us to yourself, and uh, you have brought us into your story. And I pray that as we look at this story this morning, that we would see ourselves more clearly in the story that you are writing, both in the grand swath of history, but also in our own individual lives and callings and pursuits. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my uh, fascinations uh, ever since I was a kid has been this space program. So Apollo 13 is one of my all-time favorite movies. Love when I was a kid, and we got to go down to, to Florida on vacation once and see kind of all of this, the Space Center stuff that is there. And a few uh, years ago, well, not years ago, just back uh, last, because COVID makes everything feel like it was so long ago in some ways, but last Thanksgiving during COVID, we went to Big Bend National Park for Thanksgiving, because why not? We could do it outside. And uh, so I remember reading Robert Kurtzen's book, um, Rocket Men, about the Apollo 11 
process as we were on the way down, listening to that audiobook, kept me occupied and entertained on that long drive down to Big Bend National Park. And so back in 2017, when the film uh, Hidden Figures came out, I saw the trailer for that movie. I thought, oh, I've got to see this. because I, I love any stories about the space program. And if you don't know that story. It's the story of these three brilliant African-American women who were mathematicians uh, for the Mercury program, launching the first uh, American into orbit around the Earth, John Glenn. And kind of their, their overlooked, their forgotten story. And so I thought, you know, I was like, I feel like I know the, the space program story well. But in watching that film and learning that story, opened up this whole new part of a story that I thought I knew well. And today I, I want to introduce you to sort of a hidden figure in the biblical story. A, a woman who played a big part in one of the more familiar, maybe one of the most familiar stories in the Holy Scripture, but that we often overlook. Uh, whether you're not very familiar with the Bible or you've been reading it for your entire life, this is a character that maybe you don't know a whole lot about. In fact, we don't even learn her name in the scripture reading that we heard read this morning. She's only the sister, but eventually we, we do learn her name. and She is a bit of a hidden figure in this biblical story, but we want to find her this morning and remember her today. And really, that's what we're doing all throughout this eight-week series this summer, is we're looking, uh, we're calling it Forgotten Family, and we're just looking at stories in the Bible, the characters in the story of the Bible, who we often tend to overlook or, or that we tend to forget about. In fact, if you haven't yet, we just are second week into the series, that we have these little uh, journals uh, in the back, kind of on these tables in the back of the, the lobby there. And you can follow along. You can see who all the different uh, people that we're looking at in this Forgotten Family series. It gives you kind of some scripture reading, some prayer prompts. And so if you want to follow along uh, in this, and this journal is even set up to sort of help you get ready for Sunday. So you can read some texts ahead of time and sort of be prepared for, oh, who, who is this person? By the time you get to Sunday, maybe they won't be as forgotten if you've worked, worked through some of this. So um, if you haven't grabbed one of these, feel free to do that. Um, it'll kind of guide you. There's a little something to do each, each day of the week as you work through this. And uh, again, we're going to be looking at the stories of people uh, like Beziel and Oholiab, who we looked at last week. These craftsmen who were a part of the Exodus movement came out of Egypt, and they actually built the, the tabernacle, this place where God was going to dwell. And it's the first time, their story is the first time when anyone has ever been filled with the Spirit of God. And it, it's not to preach a sermon, it's not to teach a Sunday school class, but to, to do craftsmanship, to build something. We're also going to look at people um, like Lydia and Deborah, men like Uzziah and Philemon. And so today as we explore Miriam's story, this hidden figure of the Exodus story, we're going to see a woman who is a courageous protector, who is a gifted leader, uh, and who is also a fellow struggler with the rest of us, a fellow sinner alongside of all of us. And uh, we're going to see in this story the big takeaway for us is that God can use us. He can use you. He can use anyone. And there's nothing that can stand in the way of him using you. And so Miriam's story, it begins in Egypt, just like we looked last week with Beziel and Aholiab's story. Back in Egypt, when Israel is enslaved, this is after Joseph and his brothers have gone down to Egypt, and this Pharaoh has long forgotten uh, about all that goodness, and he is enslaved 
of the Israelites. And, and not only does he enslave them to build all of these structures and, and cities and all that kind of thing, but he's increasingly worried that the Israelites will raise up enough men to sort of have an army that then can overthrow Egypt. And so he begins this policy of state-sanctioned infanticide to kill all the male children who are born. And we, we pointed this out last week when we looked at Bezalel and Holiab. It's, it's amazing that they survived this moment. And here we come to another moment where a child's life is at risk. In the midst of all of this infanticide, this state-sanctioned killing of these children, it's where we meet the courageous protector, Miriam. Look again back at Exodus chapter 2. And Moses' mother had been hiding him for three months, this baby boy. And finally she can't hide him any longer. And so sort of in a last-ditch effort to at least see him not killed, she takes this little baby boy, this little three-month-old baby, and she wraps him up and she puts him in this, in this basket, this little... It's almost like, you know, we're, we're to hear this, the echoes of the story. It's almost like a little ark, right? She puts him in that and she puts the tar, the pitch around it, just like, just like Noah and his family went into the ark. So now we have another, this is just a cool biblical echo. The authors are doing this on purpose. Now Moses goes into this little ark to be rescued through the waters, but we, they don't know what's going to happen. They put this little baby in, the, in this little basket and Miriam, his big sister, is there watching the basket goes into the river and starts floating down. And again, we don't, the, the biblical narrator doesn't give us all the details here, but you can imagine the, the things floating down the river and Miriam's walking along, seeing what will happen. And at some time, as it goes down the river, it comes to the place where one of Pharaoh's daughters, royalty, the princess, a part of leader among the people who are oppressing and trying to kill the Israelites, She's there. She's bathing in the river. And she's got her servants with her. And they hear a cry of a, a little baby crying. And they look and they, they see this basket floating down. And Pharaoh's daughter says to her attendants, well, you know, go bring the basket and find out. And she starts to inquire about this baby. Miriam, big sister, there is watching. And in that moment, this little girl does an incredibly bold and courageous thing. She makes an incredibly courageous move. She takes a risk. It's an incredibly self-sacrificing thing she does here. She takes a risk, and she, the slave girl, speaks up to and talks to the princess. Verse 7. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. She goes and gets her mom. She goes and gets Moses' mom. And this, this story really struck home uh, for me this week when I was doing research on, on Miriam and, and investigating her story. And we don't know exactly how old she was. The Bible doesn't tell us her exact age in this moment. But kind of the tradition and scholarship of how, how old she was compared to Moses and all this stuff, I mean, it seems like she was probably about seven years old as this was happening. It's kind of our best guess. Seven years old. 
I was like, I've got a seven-year-old daughter. My oldest, Lucy, is seven years old. So I just started reading this story and, and picturing Lucy. And it actually made me think of the first time that Lucy uh, met her little sister, Isla. So Lucy's about two and a half in that moment. And uh, Isla had just been born, and, and Rachel and I were still there at the hospital. And Lucy had been staying with her grandparents. And this was the big day. Lucy's going to come meet her little sister. And uh, I remember going to get them off the elevator and kind of walk them to the room. And Lucy was wearing, like, she had a backpack and sunglasses. And, you know, she's two and a half. And she's on it. And she walks into the room and, to meet Isla, her little sister, for the first time. And in the time that I had, you know, gone to go get them and bring them into the room, the, the nurse had come in to just check on Isla, just do, you know, they do the little vital signs. And so Isla was in the arms of the nurse getting, you know, her... Uh, heart listened to and all that. And Isla was not happy about that. She was very upset. And Lucy, who's, you know, she's a little bit of a, a shyer kid. She's not like big, bold presence in the room. She usually kind of likes to hang back and kind of get the bearings and then maybe she'll speak up. But she looked right at that nurse and said, she needs her mama. And uh, I think the nurse immediately handed uh, Isla back to Rachel. But Lucy just had this bold sense, that's my little sister, and she is really upset. I mean, just this first moment of this kind of sisterly connection. She needs her mama. Um, You put her down, you give her back. Uh, She needs her mama. And I just, I I thought of of Lucy, I imagine Lucy in that story, this little girl who's sticking up for her big brother, who's protecting her or him. And so again, Miriam goes and gets Moses' mom, goes to her mom. And, and I mean, just in the moment of the story, the incredible thing, do you, do you get this, that she gets her brother back? That her mom gets her son back? And, and Moses gets his life back. I mean, Moses is the biggest one in all this. He's got his life back. All because of the courage of this little slave girl, Miriam. And, and if God can use her then God can use you. God can. He can use you. And, and maybe this is obviously, maybe it isn't, but, but I want to say it anyway, that the first thing you learn from Miriam's story is this, that our age can't stop God from using us. That our age can't stop him. And, and Miriam's story is certainly not as glamorous as Moses talking to the bro- burning bush or being there, uh, you know, parting the Red Sea and all that, but there would not be a Moses. There would not be a Moses if not for Miriam, his big sister. He wouldn't be there to be in those moments. And, and, and kids, students, you know, you're, you're here this morning, uh, a lot more of you than, than usual. And let me just say, by the way, uh, you know, we, we don't have as much children's program today. It's kind of a, a one-off thing. But always, we love having kids in our services. As never, I mean, I know parents, that can be hard sometimes for you. Look, for us, who are up front leading, whether musically, as passionate, like, we love the noise of kids in this room, okay? So, I, always have your kids with you if you want. That's never going to bother us. And kids, God can use you, no matter how old or young that you are. And, and maybe you feel like, you know, I can't, I can't do anything. I'm just a little kid. I, I'm too young to, to be an encouragement, or I'm too young to help, or I'm too, No. Miriam, seven years old, God uses her. God can use you to encourage your parents, 
to encourage your brothers and sisters to, to help out on your, your team or in your classroom at school. And I know, thankfully, you know, most of you are in a break from school, but you, know, you go back in and there's kids in your class who need help, who need encouragement. You can do that. You can do that. And sometimes I think in, we tend to say things like, well, the kids, the kids are our future, or the kids are the church of the future. And that is true. The kids are the future. The kids are the church of the future, yes. But also, the kids are the church of today. Like, if you're a kid sitting here, you're not, like, waiting to, to be a part of the church once you grow up. Like, you're a part of the church right now. Like, you are the church today. God is using you, so many of you, in a whole bunch of different ways, including here on Sunday morning. A lot of kids serve in different ways, help out. You're not just the church of tomorrow, you are the church of today. Your age cannot stop God from using you. Same with, with young adults. Maybe you're here and you just graduated from college, you're kind of at the beginning of your career trying to figure this out, and you're like, I, I just don't have enough experience or, or time yet to really, to really jump in. Maybe once I'm a little bit older, once I get more settled, maybe once I get married or once I have kids, then, then, then at that point in that stage of my life, God can really, God can really use me. But there's an inc- you have incredible leadership ability. And God can use you to serve and to lead now. And, and for those of us uh, who are a bit older in this journey, um, you know, you, you may not always understand your millennial brothers and sisters, your, your Gen Z friends. But God loves them, is using them powerfully, and will continue to use them powerfully. And again, the, the boomers look down on the Gen Xers, right? This is, this is the pattern, right? And at the other end, though, of the spectrum, you know, Miriam is a child, but we also know from the Bible like, that God also uses like, super old people all the time as well. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, right? They're, they're having kids when they're 100 years old. So uh, I don't know if any 100 years... We used to have a 100-plus-year-old woman who attended Brookside. Um, I don't know if we have any 100-year-olds right here, but I mean... It's like God is using people who are 100-plus years old regularly. Anna and Simeon. Zechariah and Elizabeth. See, whether you're young or you're really old or somewhere in between, God can use you. And maybe if you're older, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm retired or I don't have enough energy or I'm, I'm too out of touch. God can't, God can't use me. I just need to kind of sit back and, and, and watch now. And No. If you're, if you're not dead, God is still ready, willing, able to use you. He is. As one of my friends says, if you're, if you're not dead, you're not done. God's going to continue to use you to pour into the next generation, to serve, to lead. He's still going to use you. So whether young or old, your age cannot stop God from using you. But there's a, another chapter in Miriam's life, and, and if we know anything about Miriam's story, it's this part, right? It's the Exodus 2 rescuing Moses kind of moment. That's, that's the part we know of her story, but Miriam grows up, as do Aaron, thanks to Miriam. Uh, Moses and, and Aaron also grow up as well. Her, her brother 
she has two brothers, Moses and Aaron, and together the three of them lead God's people out of Egypt. And this is, again, we, we don't get as many snapshots of, of Miriam, but it's so clear, not only in the accounts in Exodus and Numbers that Miriam is leading, but also later on in the prophets, in the book of Micah. So the, the prophets are, are kind of calling God's people to faithfulness. They're looking back on God's story and, and calling them to renewal and to faithfulness. So Micah is one of these prophets much later on, centuries on from this story. And he's reflecting back on this moment. And this is what God says to the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 6, verse 4. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And she's listed. These are the three people who were leading God's people in the Exodus moment. It's incredible. And, and you see it here in, uh, if you turn a few pages forward in the story from Exodus chapter 2 to Exodus chapter 15, they've parted the Red Sea, that God is part of the Red Sea, they've crossed through on dry land. And then Exodus chapter 15 verse 20 says this, then Miriam the prophetess, she's the, the first time that language is ever used of someone in the Bible, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took out a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, and the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. She rejoices in God's deliverance. She's leading a whole group of people in worship here, in celebration. And again, she's referred to here as a prophetess. She's the first one in the Bible with this title, and prophetess is just someone who speaks and leads on God's behalf. She plays this key role that we know, again, is confirmed later on in Micah chapter 6 along with Moses and Aaron leading God's people. And not only that, unlike most women in the Bible, she is never referred to as a wife or a mother. And for that culture, that's extremely unusual. And it it probably means that she was single and childless. We don't know that for sure, but never once is she, is a husband mentioned or children mentioned. all, All that we know of her is that She's probably single and childless, which could, especially in that cultural context, even be a shameful thing. And yet the Bible doesn't present her that way at all. There's no shame here, only honor for her gifts as a leader and the role that she's playing in this moment. Now, it doesn't minimize, right, the important work of being a wife or a mom. And if that describes you this morning, that that's God's calling your life, that's amazing. But just know it's also not necessarily the most important thing about you. And in different cultures, different times, different moments, sometimes that's, that has been seen. That's the, that is the most important thing. But Miriam shows us that that's not, that's not the primary identity that she has, the primary role that she plays in the midst of all of this. For Miriam, who was likely had none of those things were true of her, she's still seen as a hero, this prophetess, this leader of God's people. Enough to be remembered as this key leader in the story, all the way on into the book of Micah, hundreds of years later. And in this chapter of Miriam's story, here's the the lesson that we see, is that your gender can't stop God from using you. Again, maybe maybe this should be obvious, uh, but it often hasn't been, right? That, That even your gender can't stop God from using you. Now, Listen, I'm not saying that gender is irrelevant or that it doesn't make a difference, right? God 
created male and female on purpose. It's his idea. It's not a cultural invention. Uh, even if it has often been misused and abused by any number of cultures, gender in of itself is a good and beautiful thing. Uh, men and women are not the same. We're not meant to be the same. We're not meant to be interchangeable. Uh, we are meant to work in love and in beautiful relationship, meant to expect the glory of God and his relationship with his people. So, so gender matters a lot. And if you're in this moment of, there's, obviously there's a lot of conversation in culture right now about gender and how to think about gender well. If you're looking for a good resource, a, a thoughtful Christian resource on that, I would highly recommend the work of, of Preston Sprinkle. He's got a couple of great books as well as an archive on a website full of really helpful articles. So if you're wanting to navigate some of that, how do I think about this? How, what does the Bible say about all this? Um, I'd really just Google Preston Sprinkle and you'll find um, all of his, his stuff. Um, but at many times in church history, uh, Christian thinking about and treatment of women has communicated, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, that women don't matter or that they don't matter nearly as much as men. And, and this has led to a cultural critique of Christianity that says basically that women, uh, that Christianity is oppressive to or bad for women. And maybe you're here today, and whether man or woman, that's been a challenge for you in thinking about having a relationship with Jesus or being a part of a local church, embracing a vibrant faith. But that's a, that's a barrier, that's an obstacle to that for you. Or, or maybe for you, you've, you've kind of worked through that, and you, you're, you're okay with that, but you have friends or coworkers who you know that's, a, that's an issue for and, and wonder, like, how, how do I respond to that? And, and first, we just need to acknowledge and lament that far, far too many times and in far too many places, that critique has been true. So first of all, let's not try to paper over or sweep under the legs a place where that has been true. And if you're a woman here this morning who has experienced that, whether in a local church or in another setting, just first of all, no, that's not God's design. It's not his plan. So I'm just I'm so sorry that has happened. But despite the, the sometimes abysmal Christian practice, the stunning and, and beautiful biblical truth about women in God's mission has continued to draw women to Christianity from the earliest days of the Jesus movement. A theologian and apologist Rebecca McLaughlin has wrestled deeply with this critique of Christianity, and in her books, uh, she's got two great books. Um, I've got them here, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, um, Rebecca studied at, at Cambridge, just a brilliant thinker, author, so this is just a kind of an all-around, just kind of 12 questions about Christian faith, of which, how does Christianity relate to, to women? Uh, and also, she has another book called The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims, so helpful. Um, both of these books, she's wrestled with this, how, how to think about um, Christianity and, and women. And she points out, though, and in those books, she wants to wrestle with, why not only historically, have women been drawn to the church? But even in our contemporary moment around the world, in places as diverse as the United States and China, why is the church disproportionately female? And, and one of the main reasons she names is that she points out that Jesus and Christianity completely upended the way that the Greco-Roman Empire viewed women. In that culture, not only was it not obvious that men and women were created in God's image with equal value and dignity and worth. And it seems like such a baseline assumption for us today, but in, if you go back 2,000 years to Greek and Roman culture, this is not at all true. In fact, for them, the opposite was true. It was obvious in those cultural contexts, obvious to them, that, that women were inferior to men. 
And Rebecca points out that today, even the most intellectually honest scholars recognize that our contemporary culture does not provide sufficient grounds for human rights, much less women's rights. So if, we're, if we are only higher evolved animals and nothing more, then as Rebecca puts it, we have only the triumph of the strong over the weak. And as men are almost always physically stronger than women, we have no grounds for saying that women are equal to men. And if our only purpose, she points out, is to propagate our DNA, we have no grounds for saying that rape is wrong or feminists rightly object to women being treated like wombs on legs valued only for their reproductive power. But if evolution is our only origin story, that is precisely what women are. But Rebecca goes on to point out that Christianity and the Bible offer an incredibly different view of humans and women in particular. That in Christianity, women found a Jesus who treated them with dignity and worth, who declared that they were created in the image of God, who gave them dignity, safety, leadership, and purpose outside of traditional gender roles in their culture. And far from undermining the value and worth and dignity of women, the biblical story provides the very foundation for those things, for men and for women, for the preborn and the terminally ill. That's what we're going to discover in more of the stories like of Miriam and Deborah, of Lydia and Priscilla, many others throughout Scripture, that women are called by God to play a critical role in the mission of redemption in the world. And it is only as men and women together redeemed in Jesus that we can show forth the beauty, the complexity, the strength, and the wonder in the image of God. You can go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and you get the creation accounts. In Genesis chapter 1, it is so clear that male and female are created in the image of God. And when you get to Genesis chapter 2 and you read that, you know, Adam is alone, and this is not good. I think we tend to think either one, Adam's just like lonely, so that's, that's a bummer for him, or, and, and two, it's like, well, he can't do this be fruitful and multiplying thing by himself. And those are certainly true. But if God made male and female in his image, if you only have one or the other gender, you cannot fully show forth the image of God. The only way that we get the full-orbed picture of who God is, is men and women together. And there's certain things that each of those reveal about who God is as a being who's non-gendered that brings out beauty and glory and wonder. But when we forget family members like Miriam, we can easily start to forget this to overlook this. Okay, but there's one more snapshot of Miriam's life that we can't miss. Because you see, Miriam, like Moses and like Aaron, is also a sinner. And in Numbers chapter 12, there's a little bit of a power struggle that happens. And Miriam and Aaron, they sort of line up against Moses. So you got these three people, they're leading God's people, and there's this moment where there's a disagreement. We don't even get all the details in the story of what all was taking place, but there's clearly a disagreement, and Miriam and Aaron, they get jealous of, of Moses, and, they, and the way that they handle that, they sin against God, it's, it's clear they're in the wrong. And as a result, God actually kind of pronounces a, a harsh judgment on Miriam. She actually, she becomes a leper, so we don't exactly, but she has the skin disease that's all over her, and would have condemned her to a life of kind of being ostracized outside of, of the camp of the people. But again, in this kind of bizarre story in Numbers 12, Aaron then repents on behalf of both of them, and seven days later, she's healed. She's restored. 
And even though this is the, the last moment, besides we learn later about her, her death as uh, the final thing we, we learn about her, the end of her life, but she's still remembered by the prophet Micah, late, centuries later, as one of the heroes, as the leaders of God's people, because God can. And one last time, and perhaps this is obvious, but this is where I want to end us this morning, that we can't forget Miriam's story because she reminds us that even our mistakes, even our mistakes can't stop God from using us. Even our mistakes can't stop him. Your mistakes can't stop him. Your sins can't stop him. Your failures can't stop God from using him. And I know every single one of us here have moments in our lives that we wish we could take back, that we wish we could do over, words that we could unsay, decisions that we could unwind, things that we wish that no one else knew about us, things that we, we've held that you've never told anyone else about that no one else knows and you hope never one, no one would ever find out. And I just want to assure you this morning, and Miriam's story is, is, a, is a prime example of it, that none of those things, none of those things can hold God back from using you. None of those things are too big for his redemption None of those things are too big for his forgiveness, for his mercy, for his healing. Your mistakes can't stop him. Your sins can't stop him. Your failures cannot stop him. They never stop God from working. And if God can use Miriam, then he can use you. And centuries after Miriam died, another Miriam was visited by an angel and the angel told her that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and that she would become pregnant and that the son she would bear would be the long-awaited Messiah. And you see, we know this woman by the Greek form of her name, which is Mary. But the name her mom and dad would have called her, the name her husband Joseph would have called her, the name her son Jesus would have called her, Miriam. It's Miriam. All those years later, another Miriam bore a son, Jesus, and we look to him this morning as our only hope. He is the one, the only one who can rescue us from our pride, free us from the sin that distorts relationships between men and women, the only one who can lead us out of the slavery of sin and the promised land of freedom and forgiveness in the new heavens and the new earth. And and friends, we reach the new heavens and the earth. If we are with Jesus and we step into his kingdom, when he brings all things to healing and to right, This is a bit of sanctified imagination, but I can only imagine that we will find Miriam leading a great assembly of redeemed and renewed people, maybe even including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a great song of praise to the king of all creation, the redeemer of the world. Because of Jesus. I'm getting some class here. Come on. That's good. Um, (laughs) Because of Jesus, she could be. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, we are thankful. Thankful for Miriam, the sister that we have in our, in our faith, in our family of faith, who reminds us that, that, you know, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we're male, whether we're female, whether we uh, have lived sort of a, a squeaky clean life, which none of us really have, 
or we've lived a life that we just look back and there's just a trail of regret and hurt and pain, that none of those things can stand in the way of you using us, of you having a place for us in your story. And above all, we're, we're grateful for the, the Passover moment, the Exodus moment that Miriam was a part of, that so many centuries later, Jesus looked back upon and said, this was all about me. This was all pointing to me. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.